0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Greetings fellow town travellers. Always good to have you with me on this journey through the history of the world. I wouldn't want to do this on my own, and I know that I'm not on my own. Uh, there are thousands of us doing this together now. Uh, I want to say thanks to all the people who show their support for what Paul and I are doing. Uh, the podcast series that's out there is made possible, it's it's sustained by the Patreon.com site, uh, the financial help that comes in from there is what makes it possible for us to make the love letter to the British Isles and the love letter to the world free, which they've always been and they always will be so for those who are supporting us via Patreon.com, a thousand thank yous if you're not a member yet and you'd like to join and uh, be part of the family that's making all of this happen, uh, just go to Patreon.com search for me by name follow the instructions, sign up, part with some cash. Uh, You can join monthly or you can join for the year. And it's a bit cheaper if you do the whole year at one go. And it'd be great to have you along. We do vodcasts and question and answers and competitions and various things. It also brings people together. Everyone's talking amongst themselves and making contact and and sharing ideas. So anyway, it's time now to climb aboard the time machine as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The shout went up. Either we conquer or we perish. A seemingly unstoppable military force sweeping across the world. Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, all conquered. Spain, skewered. Bordeaux falls. And the rich city of Tours is next on the hit list. Standing in the way of this mighty Muslim army is Charles the Hammer. And the world is about to discover what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi, Neil. In the last episode, you took us to 6th century Japan as this unique island nation bubbled with intrigue and deadly power struggles. Which moment in history are we heading to this week? Morning, Paul. Yes, the last episode was all about how family feuds and power grabs and geography all helped play an important part in the shaping of Japan's national psyche. This week, we're leaving Asia and travelling west... We're in the heart of Europe, right in the middle of one of those what-if moments. What if this extraordinary battle we're about to witness had turned out differently? We're outside the gates of Tours as Charles the Hammer heads out to meet Rahman and his mighty Muslim army. We're just outside the city of Tours. In, well, France But at the time in question It wasn't really France It was the Kingdom of the Franks From which France takes its name The moment is going to happen In the year 732 732 years AD And the protagonist is Charles Martel Which is Charles the Hammer And we'll get to him in a minute But first of all there's There's some necessary background This one's about One of the many clashes over the centuries between the great faiths of Christianity and Islam. There's always, (laughs) there's always trouble between Christianity and Islam. There was then, has been all the time ever since, and there still is now. There's just no getting away from it. We're kind of used now to hearing, especially in the West, is Islam described as a religion of peace. That's, that's often that's often what you hear. It's a religion of peace. Are in the, all religions? You would hope so, wouldn't you, really? Um, but wherever there's religion, there's trouble. Uh, within religions, because they, they have factions, don't they? Within all of the faiths, all of it, wh- whatever, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism... Christianity, Islam, Zoroastrianism, Bahai, Mormons, whatever you whatever you care to mention, because you're talking about something ultimately transcendental, something transcendent, something that the the, the truth of which is to some extent beyond the reach of humankind. They're all referring to something invisible and beyond. Uh, And then when it gets into the hands of human beings, different human beings are determined that they understand different things from that transcendent truth. And they fight about it, because that's what people do. So all religions are, are fraught with internecine fighting and where they rub up against another faith, as often as not, there's trouble. But... At the moment, I think, well, it's because of, for, for so many, so many people in the West have come to associate Islam with the behaviour of fundamentalist Muslims, fundamentalist Islam, which is associated with atrocities, terrorism and and, and bombings, and 9-11, Bataclan, Charlie Hebdo... It, it has that connotation, and at the, counter, the counter to that was that was coming from the Islamic side was, but Islam is a religion of peace. So it advertises itself, pushes itself, stresses that, that Islam is a, is a religion of peace. But the, po- the point is, in the early years of it, during the time of Muhammad, and then in, certainly in, in the first few centuries after Muhammad, it was sustained by war. And it was sustained by, this is a an Arabic word, ganima, which, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that near enough, it, which is the spoils of war, the spoils of conquest. It was kind of financing the operation. Muhammad dies in 632. We've, we've spoken about Muhammad before. He, he died in 632. And, and immediately after him, there was trouble within Islam because uh, there you know factions within it that were fighting about who should who should replace Muhammad as the leader the leader of the faith uh, and that that fighting has lasted ever since but in the aftermath there were caliphates and under the under the, the rule of the the caliphates the islamic world expanded and it expanded rapidly out of the arabic peninsula where it had been established and it, it, it grew from there and the second of four great caliphates that were in operation in the years after Muhammad's death in 632, up until the 12th century, there were four significant caliphates. And the second of them... What is a caliphate? It's a caliph, is the, is the ruler, is the top dog. And so a, a king has a kingdom, a caliph has a caliphate, an emperor has an, has an empire. And there were four major caliphates, and the second of the four was the Umayyad Caliphate, which, you know, was up and running by the latter years of the 7th century. I liken it really to, the the way in which the Umayyad Caliphate operated was a bit like a shark. You know how a shark has to keep swimming forward or it drowns? No rest, no peace. It just has to keep moving, to push the oxygen through its gills, to keep it alive. The, the Umayyad Caliphate particularly was like that. It, it was it was about this ganima. It kept on expanding, moving forward, moving into new territory. And that was the way, before the Umayyads, the, the earlier Caliphate, which had swept out of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, it, really, it took everybody by surprise. We've mentioned before how Christianity took forever to get established and to get going. It, it kind of waxed and waned, came and went, rose and nearly fell. But Islam came out of the blocks at a gallop and within a very short space of time had been clattering through North Africa for a start. Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, all conquered, all subject to the will of Allah and submitting to to the faith. And by 711 AD, a Muslim army, a great host a great force had crossed the straits of gibraltar so had sailed from north africa across the narrows to the rock and so th- now they were in what they called in in their own language al andalus which is uh, al andalus which is the iberian peninsula that's spain the leader was Tariq ibn ziyad and as soon as he landed in a manner that was it's not the first time you've heard this one he ordered them the men to burn their boats so there was no going back literally he said that they had come to conquer and they would do so or perish the whole point of the umayyad caliphate and and certainly the mindset of tariq ibn ziyad was that the message from the quran the recitation the holy book was that everywhere and everyone should submit to allah and tariq set himself the task The Umayyad Caliphate was the, was the viceroy of Allah, and it was their sacred duty slash destiny to put all of the world under Allah. That was their the driving force. Uh, so they land in, in Andalus, and that's it. We've come, we're going we're to press on from here and, and win, or we will be destroyed. And if we are, that will be the will of Allah. It's in his hands, inshallah. And interestingly, Gibraltar is a corruption of uh, Jabal Tarek, which is Tarek's Mountain. So, obviously, anybody encountering the rock there is is impressed by it for impressive it surely is as a geographical feature. And he claimed it, or his or his followers claimed it for him, Tarek's Mountain, Jabal Tarek, which comes down to us as Gibraltar. So that their presence, their footprint there, has echoed and resonated. Ever since 711 AD, so as I say, that was their that was their, their stated aim was to get on from here and win. So very quickly, the the territory that we know as Spain was dominated up until that point by Visigoths. That's a name we've heard before. It's another of these groups that's swirling around in that post Roman post Roman domination world. The, the Visigoths, but Tareks, Muslims saw them off, and the Iberian Peninsula was swiftly conquered. And so they moved north then, you know, across the Pyrenees, which is the mountain range separating Spain from France, what we would call France. So they're they're very quickly in the territory that was then known as Gaul rather than France. And it was, even by the messy, bloody standards of the day, what chroniclers and, and eyewitnesses recorded of their passage through Gaul was of... Unforgettable violence and terror. They're moving this this new faith and its followers are moving through Europe like a wave, like a like a tidal wave, like a tsunami. They just seem to be unstoppable. By 725, so it's taken a few years, but they're in the shadow of the Vosges Mountains. So they're on so some of them are on the border of what we know as Germany. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think about that. We still, even now, I think most people in the we associate obviously Islam with the Middle East. But of course, like Christianity, like Judaism, you know, these all the faiths kind of were cooked up in that melting pot, that cauldron of the Middle East, and they all spread, and and Islam did likewise. But I think it's it's amazing for us to think about, or, or for or for Western Judeo Christians to think about. Islam coming so far into Europe at that time, so long ago. It's not perhaps in, in everybody's knowledge that Islam moved so rapidly in such a short space of time. I mean, it's only—it's not even 100 years since the death of Muhammad and they're in Germany. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. So by 725, they're in the shadow of the, the Vosges Mountains. And by that time, there's been change of hand. It's not Tariq anymore. You know, there's Muslim armies in, in more than one place. And by 731 AD, their leader, the significant figure in charge of all of this operation, is Abd al-Rahman. He and they, he and his force, are somewhere north of the Pyrenees. They're in Gaul. And they've been joined that year by fresh men, fresh forces coming up out of North Africa. So in 731, there's a fresh... Force has come in, has crossed the Straits of Gibraltar, has come up through the Iberian Peninsula, and they meet up with Abd al Rahman. In seven, three, two—so exactly a hundred years on this on the centenary of the death of Muhammad. They're in Aquitaine. They've been through the capital, Bordeaux, and they've uh, sacked it, raided it and put the place to the torch. That's by the middle of that year. So by June 732 AD, they're racing through that part of that territory. Aquitaine had been uh, the territory of an individual called Odo the Great. He was an octogenarian. He's up in his eighties, an old man, uh, and he's lived through and successfully lived through many defenses of Aquitaine, not just against the Muslim horde, but also against his neighbours. It's febrile times, there's there's trouble. People making territorial advances left, right and centre. But after his encounter with Abd al-Rahman and his forces, he and his surviving army flee. They abandon Aquitaine. And they go into the kingdom of the Franks next door and they're looking for Charles Martel. They come looking to Charles Martel for help. Rahman keeps coming. He's in pursuit, he's on, he's on his way to tour to the city of Tours. Apart from anything else, he has been told about great riches in the church of Saint-Martin, Saint-Martin. Uh, and you know, this idea of the shark swimming, always needing to take new fresh sustenance. So they're, they're making for Tour, and he's after the, the gold and the jewels and all the finery of, of, of Saint-Martin and the rest of the city, waiting at Tour. Is Charles Martel. Now he he had the, Charles the Hammer. He had been raised from boyhood uh, as a as a knight, a Christian knight, and he had actually he'd come into dominance. You know, an ambitious uh, man on the make, and he had, he had come into dominance back in seven hundred eighteen AD, seven one eight, uh, and at the time, uh, his he established himself in his part of the world, while an, another army of the Umayyad Caliphate was besieging Constantinople, which was something they'd been doing since the time of Muhammad. Muhammad had had identified the city of Constantinople. He characterised it as a, a ripe red apple that belonged to Allah, that belonged to the faith, and that it was the destiny of Islam to take Constantinople. And so in line with that thinking, Muslim forces had, had attempted to take Constantinople, but Constantinople was was a very tough nut to crack uh, It was defended by the legendary fortifications known as the wall of Theodosius ie walls that had been commissioned by the Emperor Theodosius and it was a, a kind of three, three sets of defenses one behind the other ditches, great walls, castellations armed men it was it was a, impossible. The Wall of Theodosius had had cut off the landward approach to Constantinople for hundreds of years. And so it was in in the case of this attempted siege by a Muslim force under the command of Maslama ibn Abd al-Malik. It was a a multi-pronged attack. He had also, there was a, a navy, an Islamic naval force that I'd got into position to, to cut off the seaborne supply routes to Constantinople because part of the, the the impregnability of Constantinople was that not only was the approach to it by land completely blocked by the wall of Theodosius, which might as well have been a mountain range in terms of its the impossibility of getting across it, it was also protected by sea defences. The Byzantine navy was armed with something truly terrifying which remains a mystery to this day, but chroniclers talk about Greek fire. The Byzantine Navy, they had guns on the bows of the ships. And by a mechanism and a recipe that's still not properly understood, they they were flamethrowers. They could project liquid fire over a great distance. And this is what they did in 718, They, they, they set fire to the Muslim Navy. It just destroyed it. And the Greek Greek fire has fascinated historians and, and military people ever since. It's obviously it was obviously something a bit like napalm. So the, the Greek Christians at some point had learned how to mix a flammable substance, you know, some kind of some petroleum something, and they they were able to mix it possibly with something like pine resin, something sticky. You know, you know n- napalm that was obviously famously used in the vietnam war was was um, naphthalene was the flammable element and palm oil hence ne palm na naphthalene and palm oil and the palm oil meant that the, the, the fire stuck to you so you were burning and you couldn't get the fire off of you well greek fire had some of the same qualities some of the same attributes anyway this is what in 718 ad this is what destroyed the navy wow. And we've, we've, we've lost... We've yeah, I mean, it, it also, they were able to pressurise it, they, they could, they were obviously, the, 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 the weapon that they had on their ships, they would pump, so they would change the pressure inside a canister by, by pumping it, right, to pressurise it, and then it would come shooting out of the end of the gun, where it was ignited by a, you know, a burning tallow or whatever so it was a, it was a complicated bit of kit sophisticated bit of weaponry and it, it, greek fire terrified the living daylights out of anybody that went up against constantinople you know right up until the fall of constantinople in 1453 so so constantinople had a long run ahead of it uh, and the the legend that is greek fire is fascinated Historians ever since there's depictions of it. You know, you can there's there's contemporary depictions of of, of, uh, of Byzantine ships with jets of flame, you know, coming out the front of it. it. Definitely happened, and it's you know it's broadly understood what they must have been about, but how they came upon the technology is amazing. Anyway, so the Muslim navy having been destroyed by by this event in that year, there was then a Byzantine army ambushed the the land forces as well and smashed them to bits as well so the siege was lifted so it was just one of many but the point we've sort of digressed there the point is that that was happening all of that adventure was happening with the umayyad caliphate outside the walls of constantinople and on the waves outside the walls of constantinople and at the same time charles martel emerged you know it's just a it's just a, a synchronicity it's just a a, co- a coincidence of events a coincidence of events so that's the that's the world into which Charles Martel emerged the Christian world of the west and the, and the Islamic world of the east they were at each other's throats at the time when Charles so he knew them well he knew of them uh, so back at Tours Charles Martel is the kingpin the top dog and he knows that Rahman is coming and furthermore he knows that Rahman is coming with a bigger army than he can offer right he knows he's going to be outnumbered and for all sorts of tactical reasons he decides that you know unlike constantinople he's not going to wait for the arrival from behind his walls he's going to go out he's going to go out choose the ground and confront raman on his own terms on his own turf i suppose to some extent it's just a demonstration of Defiance, you know, we're not we're not afraid. We're 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 here and we're ready for you. Do we know where he got his name from, the hammer? <laughs> because of what he's about to do, <laughs> 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 he was just a. It was just it's just an, a nickname applied. He was a hammer. He would crush. It's an honorific. It's an it's a it's a nickname. Um, but this is the moment. Seven thirty two A D. Beyond Beyond Tour. The two armies come together, and as expected, it's, di- it's always difficult to tell uh, history being written by the victors and all of that. It's difficult, difficult to know who's telling the truth about the size of the armies, because if you win and you get the chance to write about it, there's always a temptation to portray yourself as the underdog, the, the, the David in the face of the Goliath. You know, It happens again and again and again. Not only did we win, we, over- we overcame overwhelming forces. And if you've killed everybody, they can't, you know, they can't deny it. But there seems, amongst the chroniclers and the the subsequent history, it it seems to be uh, accepted that Rahman's force was larger. So let's let's accept that it was two very different forces. The Muslim tactic at that time was lightly armoured, mounted men, cavalry. Uh, So fast moving fast moving over the terrain, highly mobile, and so on. The Franks, Charles Martel's men, it was heavy infantry. So they were just like, they just took up a position and, you know, put down roots, like a wall. Shields up, spears, axes for throwing, javelins for throwing, swords the whole bit but they're just going to they're just going to stand their ground so it's the unstoppable force meets the immovable object it's it's one of those situations according to the story there's a standoff a mexican standoff if you like the two forces are face to face for a week you know they're just watching each other it's somewhere close by the the river loire which is you know, and, and, and again and again, the Loire emerges as, as a boundary between forces, between empires and whatever. So it's somewhere, it's somewhere beside the River Loire, uh, and it's after a week or several days at least of face-off, it's Ramand that loses his patience first or decides to make his move, so he unleashes his cavalry, um, and there's a. There's a, a, a Christian chronicler uh, called. Well, there's, a, there's a, a, a record of the event. It's called the Mozarabic Chronicle, written by a Christian Mozarab. Uh, not long after, he pieced it together. He pieced the battle together from uh, eyewitness accounts. And, and the book that he published, if you like, uh, covered the history of the area between 610 and 754. So the, you know, so the 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 battle at Tours is right in the thick of all of that. And basically, it's a it's it's it becomes it's a victory for the for the Franks. Uh, and what you write, what the what Mozarab writes about, is the is this steadfast behaviour of the of the Franks in the face of the the whirling nightmare of the the Muslim cavalry. It's the first reference in Latin to Europeans, Europense or Europans, is the word used, but it's the first time that a Latin writer used that term in you know in describing the franks the, the europeans but i've got a bit of i've got a bit, a bit of it here he's describing the kind of nature of the fighting uh, mozarab uh, the men of the north that's the franks stood as motionless as a wall they were like a belt of ice frozen together and not to be dissolved as they slew the arab with the sword the Franks, vast of limb and iron of hand, hewed on bravely in the thick of the fight. So you get a real sense of it there. You know, there's waves of cavalry coming in, constantly being galled by the, by the immovable object of the Franks. Very significantly, in the teeth of it all, Rahman, the leader of the Muslim force, is cut down, slain, which is, I mean, that's always catastrophic for a force, for a fighting force to lose their top man is always significant. They fought until it was dark, nonetheless, and then it, it stopped, you know? There's no floodlights. There's, there's, there's no way of going about these things effectively in the dark, so the, the two forces withdraw from one another. And then in the morning, when the Franks awaken on the battlefield, the Muslims have gone. Probably in no small part because they've been thrown badly galled by the loss of their leader, but they're gone. They're nowhere to be seen. Um, it wasn't the it wasn't the end of it, uh, not by any stretch of the imagination. Charles Martel would continue to fight Muslim armies again and again, but always, always he had the upper hand. And eventually, and famously, the Umayyad Caliphate and the and the and the Muslim force in its entirety were driven back across the Pyrenees back into Spain, back into the Iberian Peninsula. So 732, that's, a, that's one of those dates that's like 1066. It's one of those dates that, you know, people sort of tend to remember or ought to remember. It was the high watermark for the advance of the Muslims, of the Umayyad Caliphate. That was it, you know, that was as far, that was as far as they got. They've got some distance, though, haven't they? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, that's the, that's the point. It's amazing as well when you think how far they were from home. I mean, people talk about stretched supply lines. I mean, it's, you know, it's beyond that. They're operating, uh, they're so far from home, uh, you know, if, if they even think of home, you know, they may well have been of the mindset that, you know, wherever they lay their hat, that was their home. I don't know. They, I, you know, from the beginning, they hadn't really intended to be going back anywhere but they're so far out, they're so extended. That's part of the miracle of them, how they were able to keep going, always in hostile territory. You know, they were always surrounded by people that didn't want them. (laughs) they kept on going. The Kingdom of the Franks was already there, obviously, but this was a, a forging process. This testing in this fire of the fight against Islam, it forged... It annealed that way you do with with with, with steel you know th- that heating again and again and again the heating and cooling heating and cooling hardened the franks into something permanent into something solid so it was the making of you know i suppose what ultimately becomes france in any event they were stronger than they had been before and it reverberated and and was never forgotten Much later, when Edward Gibbon wrote *The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire*, um, you know you mentioned you mentioned the distance, Paul. How far they had come. Gibbon remarked that the Muslims had travelled a thousand miles from Gibraltar to that climactic battle with Charles Martel. If they had gone another thousand miles, you know, if things had worked out differently and they kept on going, they'd have been in Poland or the Highlands of Scotland. If they had taken another another thousand miles, um, it's you know, and Gibbon has it as, and I quote: "The Rhine is not more impassable than the Nile or Euphrates, and the Arabian fleet might have sailed without a naval combat into the mouth of the Thames. Perhaps the interpretation of the Quran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth." of the revelation of Muhammad. Now, Gibbon didn't know and could not have foreseen that, you know, by now and for for the longest time, you know, the, the Quran is taught, is studied in Oxford and, and throughout Britain. Hot war is not the only way to get your way. And, you know, maybe the message of this moment is that, you know, it's to the patient and determined go the spoils. Shining a light, busy, bustling and famous throughout Christendom, an island where some of the world's finest Anglo-Saxon artworks were created. Odin and Thor, square sails, prows carved with dragons' heads and circular shields slung over the gunnels. slaughter and pillage. Gold and jewellery grabbed and survivors rounded up as slaves. And for the next four centuries, these mighty warriors wrote themselves into the history books. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel and to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.